I watch clouds are wobbly from the floor of that kayak. Souls cross ages like clouds cross skies. And though a cloud shape nor hue nor size don't stay the same, it's still a cloud and so is a soul. Who can say where the clouds blow from or who the soul be tomorrow? Only Somni, the east and the west, and the compass and the atlas, yea. Only the atlas of clouds. Welcome to the Lit to Lens podcast, a safe place for folks who like the book better than the movie. This is episode one of The Unadaptables, season seven. In this episode, we're talking about Cloud Atlas. Uh, we skipped October because it didn't really happen, folks, and we're recording this on Tuesday, November 17th. We actually recorded this on Sunday, two days ago, the 15th, and uh, the audio was super, super bad. So It was my fault. Well, it was both of our faults. Well, I think it was my fault because you couldn't hear me at all. So hopefully, if you're listening to this, you'll be able to hear these words. I can't hear you, but oh, okay, <laughs> we'll just move forward. Um, so check out our most recent episode on The Devil All the Time. And be sure to check out uh, Robert Pattinson's performance and Bill Skarsgård's accent. They're both really great. Um, and I am with the Sonmi Prazen, Solusha Crossan, and Knuckle Sandwich Enthusiast, Mr. Eric. Say hello to the people, E. Hello, people. Welcome to our cloud atlas podcast that we've recorded before in a past life and now in a current life we're recording it again it's weird how that happened well things repeat clouds roll through and they continue to roll through (laughs) do you think we'll record this another time probably probably in a future life yeah i think a, a, a sextet of times i mean our podcasts are live living things so that's true. They can't. They can, in fact, be reincarnated, right? Yeah. Into another version. I water them. I feed them. You do. I give them light. <laughs> Thank God, because I have not been doing that. Shelter. Yeah. <laughs> Keep them in a warm place. So, thank you for joining us on take two. It Wait, was... we've got to talk about our wine. Oh, sorry. Keep going. Well, which, which wine are we drinking today? So we are drinking a wine called, well, the the the. I was gonna say the brewery. <laughs> the winery is called Cloudbreak. Well, this is your wine. Yeah, this is like. Uh, the first wine that I liked, I guess, I was not a big wine drinker in college and after, but I started to get into it a little bit more. I was like, I should probably drink some more wine. I should probably be like a higher class citizen, you know? And um, so, so I bought a $10 bottle of wine, yeah, <laughs> which was cloud break. You found all the cash in your pocket. <laughs> exactly. Spent it on wine. And uh, it was a Pinot at the time. And then I was like, this is pretty good. I I don't really care. It's $10. It's I'm not, I don't have a palate for wine yet you know i will one day maybe hopefully. you still don't is that what you're saying yeah basically uh, well, i'm still drinking cloud break so obviously not <laughs> so it had, the price actually went down from 10 to 9 dollars. so they're making so much money folks because they're so popular and they're so good that they can lessen the price that makes sense to me you know, you know what i sorry go ahead you know what i found out is that there is actually a lot of beers that have cloud in the name because i saw you drinking this and i was like oh we should drink this while we record mm-hmm. cloud atlas and last time we were drinking coffee because it was in the morning but right. now it's at night we can drink wine interesting but i i had a beer that was like a juicy ipa then it was a cloud something oh. and another beer that was also cloud something hmm. i think it's just a it's a big time uh drinking name well 
I feel like that those are probably hazy IPAs that you were drinking, maybe. Yeah. And I know a lot of the hazies cloudy. have like cloud. Yeah, cloudy. Yeah, that's how you describe it. Exactly. Cloudy Atlas. This is a perfect time to be recording this podcast. Damn. We are in the cloud moment, folks. Yeah. So we are experiencing a cloud break. Have you tried the wine yet? I have. It's good. I think I might have overchilled it. What do it's, you think? I like it. I don't. I don't usually chill wines, um, but actually, I really enjoy it this way. I think you're. What I've been told is that you're supposed to drink them a little below room temperature, a little oh. beneath room temperature. So how long do you usually keep them? I think like ten minutes. Oh, interesting. Or okay. people have like wine fridges where they'll be kept for ever. But I don't have a wine fridge. I just have a normal fridge. Right, yeah. And yeah. so, like, 10 minutes before I pop open a bottle, throw it in the yeah. fridge. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, maybe one day you can get, like, a wine fridge. Well, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, no, I really like this. This is really good. So, before we keep talking about the wine, we're going to have to get into some fast facts for the folks here. So, the novel Cloud Atlas was written by David Mitchell, who is the author of Black Swan Green, um, most recently, Utopia Avenue, uh, The Bone Clock, Slade House, Number Nine Dream, a plethora of others. He's from England. Great writer. Published This book was published in 2004. Goodreads rating of 4.01 out of 5. I think Eric and I mentioned uh, on Sunday that we actually probably brought this down a bit because we both rated it a 4, right? Both rated it a 4. A single basis point drop for yeah. Cloud Atlas. That's, that's tough. But yeah. still hanging in at above 4, which is good. The film was directed by the Wachowskis. Um who are known for the Matrix trilogy, V for Vendetta, and Speed Racer, and as well as Tom Twyker. So there's actually three directors on here, which is kind of interesting. Um, I feel like you don't really see that very often. Um, but it was written for the screen by the same people, the Wachowskis and Tom Twyker, uh, starring Tom Hanks, Halle Berry, Jim Broadbent, Hugo Weaving, Jim Sturgis, Duna Bay, Ben Wyshaw, Susan Sarandon, and Hugh Grant. That was a mouthful. There are a lot of actors in this movie. There are so many actors. And there could have been even more, because each actor plays like, six characters true so a sextet of characters yeah so if anything they're kind of i feel like if i was a working actor in hollywood i would be upset that they did this because you're taking characters away from that's from a good me. paying jobs for people will it's tough yeah. tom hanks probably got paid six times his normal salary probably not but yeah, i doubt it yeah is <laughs> this was released in october 26 2012 rotten tomato score of 67 percent metacritic score of 55 so goodish not great Dece. Yeah. As the kids would say. Is that what the kids are saying? I have no idea. <laughs> what they are now. I'm not a kid. I, if I were a kid, I would say this was Deese. It was, <laughs> every time you say Deese, I think you're going to say Deese Nuts or something. And oh. This is a family show. Deese. So. Well, you're the one that went there. I was just saying Deese. <laughs> yeah, my bad. Yeah, so not, not great, but not bad. So would you like to give us a little recap? Yeah. Cloud Atlas is a story that charts the rise and fall of humanity through six interconnected sections. I keep making jokes about it, but... A sextet is a, is a couple of sections intertwined together. Six sections intertwined together. Yes, it is. Um, it's a story about truth, about progress, about the eventual collapse of all we hold dear. It's also a story about story and how your story is not always your own. It can echo through place and time from one podcast recording session to another. From Sunday to Tuesday. From Sunday to Tuesday. <laughs> so we have a little game we like to play here. Um, usually it's called two truths, one lie. And that's what it's called this time as well. Eric, do you know the rules? Yes. You're going to read three statements. Two of them will be truths and one will be a falsehood. One, two of them will be true truths. True, true. And one will be a lie, lie. I don't think they said that in the movie, but we're going to keep moving on. So number one, 
The film's second biggest overall gross by country was here in the United States. The biggest gross was in Korea. That's number one. Number two, the film received a 10-minute standing ovation uh, at its premiere during the Toronto International Film Festival in 2012. Um, and then that was number two. And then number three is this is an independent film. Eric, what are you thinking? These are tough. These are tough. The first one, you 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 hit the film where it is because one of the scenes or one of the sections takes place in like a Neo-Korea. Mm-hmm. So Neo-Korea could the home country watch it in a big number maybe 10 minutes standing ovation at tiff i don't know people at film festivals are kind of crazy i feel like it, there's like one end is super hype the other end is super negative so maybe it did a, a 10 minute standing ovation would be like one thirtieth of the film's runtime <laughs> if i was them i would be like i need to take a bathroom break so i'm gonna get out of here you guys you guys go clap. yeah i'm that's gonna true. go ahead and roll out <laughs> Um, and then this is an independent film. I guess it depends what your definition of independent film is. Independently funded. Does that help? Money's green, man. So <laughs> that's all I gotta say. What, about were, what it. were you gonna? That's all I gotta say. About what were that. your? What's your defi- or definition of independent film? Just out, outside of like the traditional studio system. Yeah. Okay. The yeah. majors that, and the mid majors. That fits within my definition as well. All right. Well. Glad we got that out of the way. I'm going to say that it did not receive a 10-minute standing ovation at TIFF. Is that your final answer? That's Eric? my final answer. Because people ran to the bathroom. That's why. <laughs> That's my second. They probably should have because that is incorrect. They did stand for 10 whole minutes um, at the end of the film for a standing ovation. In, but that's Toronto. You know, Canadians are a little weird. You know, they're not like normal Americans. Who have that's true. They, they watch ice hockey. Yeah, so their bladders are probably stronger. Oh, because they ice fish. Yeah. They're able to be outside for hours at a time. Yeah. They ice fish and they watch hockey. So. You know, is that the, can, you know my third thing about Canadians? Uh, I, I cannot. They eat um, poutine. They like poutine. Oh, okay. But that doesn't have nothing to do with their bladder. But that's, a, <laughs> that's the three things about Canadians. Now you know. So you're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> so the, the lie was uh, the biggest gross was actually in China. Um, but interestingly, interestingly enough, uh, the gross was $27 million total, 27.7, and the U.S. was 27.1. Can you name a third country or the number three country? It's not. Well, you put Korea here, so it could be Korea, but it could be any other country in Correct. This, this crazy world of ours. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, Russia. Oh. Which I found was interesting because they also had the second big, biggest opening weekend in Russia. So maybe for whatever reason, this did really well in Russia. So good for them. Anyways. <laughs> yeah. I remember, uh, this film was financed partially by the German government too. So that's true. I mean, that, what does that say about the film that it didn't even pick up steam in Germany? Yeah. I mean, Germany was pretty far. Well, they're, I think they were number five or six. So not too far down the list, but yeah. Be like, guys, we German made this school. movie. Wasn't it great? Come watch it. Literally, taxpayer money went to this movie. And they German were like, I can't even watch this piece of shit. <laughs> I can't sit in a... Fo- I was about to do a British accent, but... That's what they sound like in Germany. <laughs> I, I know you've never in been to Germany. For an, in a theater for three fucking hours. Man. What's a German accent? It's a lot more harsh. Yeah, I wouldn't even know. I'm not even going to do it, because I'm going to upset some people. Probably. That's fair. Okay. We have a big, big listenership in Germany. That's true, we do. Um, well, you got it wrong. 
um that's okay there will be a next time um but there might not be next time for you to win so i mean you might lose the rest of the way out it's been a it's been a tough one this is a big loss for you yeah so we'll see if you can i think this might be back-to-back losses i think i think it's back to back to back to back (laughs) we can go back and check um but we're gonna take a quick break and we'll be back if you like what you're hearing please rate and review us on apple podcasts it'll help us find more fine listeners like you what are you doing boy I thought I'd made myself clear. Do what you want. I'm leaving. Fine, Frobisher. Go. I'll take this. Give that to me. It's mine. I'm warning you. Under the conditions of this relationship, I'm certainly within my legal rights. Give it to me. Give it to me or I swear to God I will kill you as you stand. Please. You're a coward. I'll do it. You won't pull that trigger. Your kind never does. And we are back. Thank Ro- you. Sorry, did you want to say something? <laughs> I was in the middle Sorry. of bringing us back, and you just interrupted. So we're going to try this over again. We're back from Slusha's Crossing. <laughs> Sorry. That's my bad. No, it's okay. We'll just, we'll just pretend like just it never going, happened. <laughs> um, so... It says here you're gonna ask me what did I think of the novel, but just, I'm just, actually gonna ask just you. Just restart. Just restart. <laughs> just keep it rolling, but just redo it. Okay. And we're back. Uh, thank you for that brief word from our sponsor, Eric. How are you? I'm good now that I know where to find Little Lens. If I have an idea for an episode, uh, I will surely be emailing the Little Lens account. Yeah. Although we didn't put the Gmail in the... No, littlelands at gmail.com. <laughs> you can tweet at us. You can find us on Instagram. You can now email us, littlelands at gmail.com. Yeah, I look at the emails. I do too. People moderate them, so... I don't look at the Twitter as much, but... No. Don't DM us, by the way. We're getting some re- weird DMs recently. That's true. Or do, you know, yeah. whatever. So, um, would you like to ask me a question? Yeah. So, we're in the book section now. Um, yes. I just want to know, what did you think about the book? I feel like it took us a little bit longer to read this than usual, but also we've been reading some tough books yeah, of late for Little Ends. Maybe not, maybe not a, like the last two, but the last six, I would say like four of them have been a challenge. I honestly couldn't even recite to you the last six that we read. I was just thinking we read To All the Boys I Love before, like kind of recently, and yeah. that wasn't really hard, but... That was probably over the summer. Was it? I can't remember. <laughs> 2020 it doesn't really count. Yeah, that's true. So for this book, it was it was good in sections and it was a, it was a tough read in sections. I so a little bit of backstory. I bought this book in 2012 when the movie was coming out, and I wanted to read it before, and I like got halfway through I think, and just like I just couldn't do it. Um, and I put it down for eight years and picked it back up this year, and I'm glad I finally closed that chapter of my life because it's been a long eight years. You know, if you don't read books that you start, they weigh heavy. You know, an unfinished book is like an unfinished love story. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> what a great, what a great quote. Uh, that's a quote from the movie. Yeah. <laughs> what did you think? Um, I really liked the beginning of it. Yeah. I texted you and I was like, wow, we're going to record this podcast in like three days because I'm going to be done with this book. And then I just sort of hit a wall at some point. Yeah. Um, there's six sections like we mentioned before. And by about like halfway through the fourth, actually the fourth was good. That's Timothy Cavendish. Yeah. The fifth, the Sun Sun Me section mm-hmm. is 
a bit of a challenge because the language starts to get funky. Yep. The ideas start to get like really hard to parse, mm-hmm. and uh, the way the story is told shifts. Like I think yes. the Timothy Cavendish is the last section. Maybe is one of the only sections. I guess that's more of like a memoir. The Somni section, Somni section is told as an interview, mm-hmm. right? And it's, it's, it's. I don't know. It slows you down. It slowed me down. Yeah, it was. It's kind of weird to shift. It's very difficult to shift between. I don't know what you call styles or prose um, that are so stark from one another. And all six are different. Yeah, they're incredibly different. Um, but, but I had the same issue with you. So I actually struggled with the first part. I know you like the Adam Ewing sections. I really don't like reading old English. It's just like I never did well in English class. I, never, I hated Shakespeare. And this reminded me of that. Uh, but I had just as much of an issue reading the Lucius Crossing, which is like a futuristic dialect um, that's kind of like hillbilly-ish. Would you say? Yeah, yeah, um, like um, cave, lots of cavemanish. Yeah, sort of like primitive. Un, uh, yeah, primitive. And like lots of combined words and lots of like words that don't have full endings and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, which was, you know, I tried when I was reading it to to read really slowly and just grasp as much as I could. And at a certain point, I was like, I literally don't really understand what's happening. So I tried to grasp as much as I could and just get through it. Um, the Sami one wasn't as bad. But it is kind of dull and dry to just read an interview that goes on for, you know, a hundred or so pages. And her way of talking. Yes. Which is very robotic. I mean, it's very, like, yeah, she is. non-human. Yeah. So, it's, like, for the, in that respect, it's done well. Yeah. But it's just, it, it's a different, like, every section is just a different challenge. What was the, what was your favorite section to read and then what was, like, the easiest? I think the well, I'll do easiest the first. The, yeah. br- the easiest breeziest was definitely Louisa Ray for yeah. me. That's the Same. third section. Same here, yeah. Um, which is set in the seventies. That was the easiest. My favorite section, I think, is probably Timothy Cavendish, mm-hmm. or the second section. Um, now I'm blanking on it. Robert Frobisher. Oh yes, those two I think were my favorite. But Timothy Cavendish is, was a bit funnier, and yeah. so I'm a fan of funnies. Yeah. I, I, w- I would say the same. I think Timothy Cavendish was probably the most entertaining. Well, yeah, entertaining. And then the Lucy Ray one was probably the most the breeziest. Um, and then the Frobisher one, we should mention, we should mention that it's written in letters that he's writing to Rufus Sixsmith, who appears in the Lucy Ray story. Um, but also the Adam Ewing one is kind of similar. It's not letters, but they're diary. It's entries. a diary entry. Yeah. They're all sort of, they all have their own like hook. Yeah. First one's diary. Second one is letters. Mm-hmm. Third one is just like you're almost reading a novel in a yeah. sense. You kind of are like a mystery novel. Yeah. yeah. Based on like future, what you learn in the Timothy Cavendish chapter. Yeah. Timothy Cavendish is writing a memoir. Mm-hmm. San Mi is being interviewed. And then Slusha's Crossing, I think is played. It's, it's a story being told That's by right. the main character, Zachary's son. Son. Yeah. So they're all sort of like secondarily reporting things in yeah, a way. There's true. no like first person action. You're not, you're never like in anything. That's true. I didn't think of that. I didn't think of that either, yeah. but we're learning. Well, hey, <laughs> <laughs> take two, baby. So, um, yeah, I remember you texting me like when we first started reading the book, like this is, this book is incredible. Now, what made you say that? Um, at the time, at the time, I think I was probably in the Robert Frobisher section and just knowing that what he was going to do the author with all the sections um like each section is written 
period specific. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just like, this is going to be awesome. He's yeah. going to, he like knows exactly what he's doing. It's all about like his intention is I'm going to vibe with it and it's going to be great. So what, what about that appeals to you? Well, it's a 500 page book. So we, we could be in a 500 page book. That's just, you know, tr- the traditional third person omniscient, but the fact that he was willing to play around with styles and he was pretty good at it mm-hmm. after two sections. But I was like, this guy knows what he's doing it and everything is going to be fresh and fast. And I just love it. Yeah. And then it ended up being, there were slower parts. Yeah. But on the way downhill, like, I don't know about you, but when I started to read the second parts of all these sections, because the way the book is set up is there's six sections. We go part one on one through five. Section six is told all the way through. And then we go part two on five through one. Exactly. So it sort of builds and then it's a crescendo and then falls. Yeah. Um, and when it falls, it really like, for me, at least in the reading experience, picked up a whole lot of momentum. Yeah. It's tough because, um, you know, I, I guess this is more of a question for like how writers write, but like, you know, when I was going through it and I, it took me about a month or, or a little bit more to read this book. And as I'm going through it, I kind of forget or had forgotten what had happened in previous sections. So sometimes I had to go back and I don't know if that's just the nature of the way that I read. Um, but I feel like it's probably beneficial to read it like conceptually, like by that, I mean like day after day after day. Yeah. Um, not like have too much time between stories. Cause you're basically reading the first part, the first part. And then the last part of the book are one um, story. Yeah. And they're 400 pages apart. So you got Adam Ewing part one and Adam Ewing part two, a month different. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's, it, it's difficult in that sense to sort of remember all the details and the information. But if you're like a speed reader and you were able to grab this information quickly, you probably did do great with this book. And this was, this book won a ton of awards when it came out. Yeah. And you can, I mean, you can definitely tell it's, it's really, it's a well done book. I think. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, there's definitely it's critics, but I think more of, if you're just like looking for a good story, that's well told. Mm-hmm. You do worse. Yeah. I mean, they're almost, they're almost like six short stories. Yeah. Um, that are intertwined and then reference each other, which is interesting. I mean, that's, it's an idea that has probably been done before. It's like story within a story, but on this level, maybe not on this level. Um, I can give you a book on my bookshelf right now that does this. Oh, really? Way worse. Way worse. Yeah. What's it called? I don't want to say. Okay. Oh, no, I bought, uh, I went on vacation a couple of years ago to Maryland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had to go to Maryland. Why would you go to Maryland? For I don't vacation? know. Bad, bad idea. <laughs> The clouds didn't tell me otherwise, but I, I went to this local bookstore and I bought this book by an author who had signed it and it was just oh, okay. like little like self-published book of short stories. And the idea was that all the characters were part of this t- little town and they like bled into every other story. Oh, cool. So you would like recognize this person from a previous story right? and it just wasn't. It wasn't as good. Yeah. That's yeah. Well, they tried. They tried and I read it and it was, she signed it. So I have that. Fuck yeah. Maybe they'll make a movie and it'll be worth a lot of money. Could be. Never know. Could be. Um, so is there anything else you want to say about the book? I, you know, we both really enjoyed it. Uh, for the most part, I mean, there were tough parts to get through, but I think in the end, I think you're happier that you read it than you didn't. Right. Yeah. What we should probably do is talk about its adaptability or lack thereof. Mm -hmm. Um, because this is an unadaptable season, 
we tried to pick books that we thought were, I mean, I looked at some lists, right? And that's pretty much how these seasons get built is we come up with a conceit and then we figure out ways to fill it. Yeah. And this season we were meant to lead up to Dune. Right. And that got pulled out from under us. But Cloud Atlas was like a strong, I think, number two pick for us. Yeah. So, um, and I think one of the reasons why is when you think about something that's unadaptable, well, why is it unadaptable? I think complexity is mm-hmm. probably the number one factor you look at. There are so many characters. There are so many scenes, so many settings. Mm-hmm. It's just to make a movie out of it, it's very big. It's yeah. very complicated. The narrative is so intertwined and long that it's almost like a cord stretched really thin. And if yeah. you pluck something the wrong way, it might snap and it might not work as a movie. Right. Um, so I think that's, that's why Cloud Atlas. And I think... Um, for anybody that's read the book and watched the movie, you, you sort of get that. Yeah. Um, so with that said, how would you go about adapting the story if you were given um, keys to the screenwriting, the screenwriter's room for Cloud Alice? I think for me, and it's funny because having sat with this opinion for longer, I still agree with it. We talked about last time that I really didn't want a story to be told like very fast with mm-hmm. a lot of cuts. Yep. I think the, the obvious impulse was to say, we can't just tell each story to its conclusion and then start the next story. Yeah. That's not re- what a movie is. Right. You're now you're just telling six different movies, mm-hmm. but I kind of like that. I kind of liked the idea of a slow burn. We get 50 minutes with Tom Hanks in the Adam Ewing session. We get 50 minutes with Tom Hanks in the Robert Frobisher section. Mm-hmm. That's not, Tom Hanks is not in all those sections necessarily as the main characters, but mm-hmm. he's, I think in all of them. But anyway, the, the point being like, I liked the idea of this just being a slow melodic story sort of told as an epic about the rise and fall of humanity told in like a couple of vignettes. Yeah. I mean, I really like that idea of letting it play out as the writer intended essentially um, on the screen. And, you know, I think the easy criticism to that would be, why not just make a miniseries or why not make a TV show? Mm -hmm. Um, So how do you fit 500 plus pages into, you know, 120 minutes or more? You ask for another 60. That's how you do it. That's what you do. I think, I mean, I do think that's part of the problem with a book like this is that you need that extra 60 minutes. Mm -hmm. And that's why... Germany had to finance this movie. Yeah. We should say we didn't really talk about the independent part of this uh, in the last section. The film tried to get funding from big studios, but that just wouldn't happen. Apparently Tom Hanks was a big um, supporter of the film financially as it was trying to get its feet off the ground, um, but kept failing and failing, but received a significant amount of money from the German government. It was actually filmed, I think for the most part, or at least in certain sections in Germany, in Germany. So anyways, continue. Sorry. No, I mean, I think, you know, you get to fight for those 60 minutes. And if you are fighting for those 60 minutes, you don't necessarily get like Sony behind you. You don't get Warner brothers behind you. Maybe you today you'll get like Amazon behind you, Mm -hmm. but even then who knows? Like, I don't know the economics of today are a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Um, but I mean, you, you almost can't do this. You almost can't do cloud Atlas in two hours. I don't even, I don't actually think it works. Really? It's not enough time. Yeah. If you're going to do cloud Atlas, because cloud Atlas is a story that requires, all the sections, I yeah. think. Yeah, um, and it requires certain details of each section because you have characters overlapping. 
Yeah. You need to hit those as well. You can't just tell the main character stories from each section. You have to have the tertiary characters play like a pretty prominent role in those sections. Yeah. And what I what I do think is ingenious about the film adaptation is the idea to have, and obviously there's problems with it that we'll, we'll get into, but the shorthand to use actors in each section mm-hmm. to sort of hammer home this idea of reincarnation existing and ideas n- knowingly and unknowingly passed down from generation to the next to mm-hmm. the next, um, was, I, I thought was really good. And I think one of the problems you would have thinking through that, adapting it is, okay, well, I can have six stories, but they're all kind of saying the same thing, more or less. Like, mm-hmm. I, I have a couple of points, you know, I'm t- I want to talk about oppression, I want to talk about greed, mm-hmm. I want to talk about, like, how bad capitalism is, right. and how that's going to fuck up the environment. Okay. And Well, it, the author, right? Yeah, right, right. Like, right, those yeah. are his, that's his big points. Mm-hmm. And if it's just six stories saying somewhat similar things yeah then it might be a little bit like knocking on the head with a hammer maybe do you choose one or two of those maybe and just like focus primarily on those and then go from there because you have to cut stuff out right if you're making a movie about a 500 page book you're gonna have to cut out some stuff yeah i don't think you want to cut out the ideas though Mm -hmm. or at least not the big ones Mm -hmm. right um like i mean oppression is huge The, the book is in a lot of ways about that Mm -hmm. it's a lot about just like i feel like every book that a a guy writes is about the sins of a past generation like coming home to roost or whatever Mm -hmm. and i don't know i I think to be cloud atlas you have to keep some of those things yeah um and where the cuts are going to come is from funnily enough the sections that we like the best the sections that don't really have a lot of like overall narrative thrust like mm. louisa ray yeah her section really is not that important what her section does mm. is set up this idea of like a corporation becoming too big to stop right and that plays out later in the story and then that plays out later in the story mm-hmm, yeah but like louisa ray and her work yeah. not, a lot of it is immaterial so and and that section louisa ray section is pretty like we said it was breezy to read and it's pretty easily digestible probably for for both the screen as well as the as well as reading it but for the sonmi section and as well as the solutions crossing section with zachary that are told in relative especially zachary section that are told in different uh different dialects how do you bring that to, to the screen do you have the actors you know speak the way that they spoke in the book um, which is difficult to understand. Do you have subtitles? Like, you know, what is your what are your thoughts on that? I think they the way they did in the movie was was good. Mm-hmm. Um, well, as you were saying that, I I thought it was funny. Like, the sections that we liked the most that we just said in the book are like the the keystone sections are five and six. Yeah, it's on me and Slusha's Crossing, the Zachary yeah. section. Yep. But those are also the sections that we liked least <laughs> yeah, to read. Yeah. So it's it's sort of like okay, we'll cut from the sections you like and leave the sections you like less in because those are the important ones. Right. Well, if that's the way we read the book, do we actually like this book as much as we think? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe we don't. Or maybe we need to add more focus on those sections because they're so important and that we understood maybe the least from them because they're less easily digestible. Yeah. So you need to spend more time with it. Yeah. 
I think that the thing about this Somni is Sanmi section is just that she's a, a replicant. Yeah. Fabricant. A fabricant. Yeah. It's not Blade Replicants Runner. Replicants Blade Runner. Um, so the way she speaks, the way she interacts with the world is a little bit more, it's just different, right? It's, yeah. it's more, it's not even more literal. It's like, it's, it's different than how a human would view it. Yeah. So there's a, a distance between the archivist who is interviewing Sanmi. There's a bit of a difference in, the way that they understand each other. Yeah. So I don't know. I think you need, you need the fluff to get to the heavy stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was all against the intercutting. This movie is told very fast. There like every, there's like six minutes of story and then we flash to another section. Yeah. Maybe that is the way to do it. Maybe because you don't, you don't want to be with Somni for not 60, like 30 minutes. Maybe you just don't want that. Yeah so I'm thinking more about this now. And I think if you're a studio head or a studio exec or whatever, uh, or maybe financing the movie, you basically want people to stay engaged from, from a to a to Z throughout the entire movie. And you're less likely to do that as we are examples of with reading this book, um, to do that over the course of 180 minutes, um, with a movie because you have long, long drawn out sections, that are complete and they're not interrupted. But if you interrupt them constantly, essentially like with five, 10 minute scenes, you, the, or the audience knows, okay, uh, Louis Ray's coming on in the next 10 minutes. I can just kind of chill out for the section or like I can make it, you know, 10 minutes focusing yeah. on this section. That I don't really care about, but whatever, I'll do it because I know Louis Ray or whoever is coming up next. This is how you like, raise a child you're like before you eat your dessert you gotta finish your broccoli and that's the way it is that's the way it is right yeah so i don't know yeah that that is interesting we didn't even cover this last time yeah right but um i don't know there's there's not a whole lot obvious that i would want to cut there obviously are some medium to big things that were cut out of the movie and we'll talk about those later Mm -hmm. but when you like think about cuts it's just like there are so many characters yeah and then movie no matter how it's told linearly or you know zigzaggily mm-hmm. that's not really a thing <laughs> like so fast like it is yeah there's just there's just gonna be too many people and it's gonna be really confusing yeah it's already confusing yeah um and i think if you it, it's gonna collapse under its own weight mm-hmm. unless you just say we don't need these three characters in this section this one character can stand in for that yeah right right kind of fill in yeah okay i know that's not a that's not a like very that's not a tough answer but that's the answer i have yeah that's fine i mean i think it's hard to i mean this is why these books were quote-unquote unadaptable it's it's hard to sort of parse your way through how to do it i mean they you know we'll get into this later but they did it in a very unique and i feel i feel like i want to say a very hollywood way um to make it super grand and epic but um yeah we'll get into that next section did you want to add anything else no i don't think so the only thing i i didn't say that i i think i had in my mind was that what i really wanted and what the movie like didn't quite accomplish i think was for each section to look and feel like it did on the page where the adam ewing section was sort of this like colonial story of i keep saying oppression but that's like that's what it was yeah, yeah. so it, it's told like heart of darkness 
Mm. And then Robert Frobisher is told, you know, it's Europe. It's the early 1900s. It's mm. sort of Gilded Age. It's like sexy. We love British people kind right. of thing. Um, I wanted that movie. And then I wanted like Three Days of the Condor, Louisa Ray. Yeah. This is totally like 70s conspiracy thriller yes. thing. Yes. I wanted, I was like, this is the way is the way like i want the mandalorian right um i thought i thought that was the way to do it i like let's make let's literally make six different movies each of them made like the movie that they are yeah right 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 i thought that would i thought that would be fun no i I would love to see that movie because i think that movie would be way more rewarding in the end for the viewer because you you essentially make the connections yourself whereas um in the movie that we saw you're sort of like you said i think before you're force fed yeah so you can't it's not a lot of heavy lifting on your part but if you do the heavy lifting in your movie it's more rewarding for the viewer and therefore means more that's quote unquote a better film yeah right like so the jump cutting we do have one character who says one thing and then we literally cut to another character doing that thing in yeah. a different time and place right. it's like oh yeah oh my god everyone's connected man Whoa. it's sort of like the i think the stereotype of the pothead in the dorm room who's like whoa everything's connected dude yeah. that's sort of what this movie is like kind of yeah it's, it's like, like here smoke some weed man it's all connected, honestly man. we should watch it high see if it's any different not that we condone doing drugs but well our state uh might legalize yeah so weed, so we'll cross that bridge when we get to it <laughs> yeah <laughs> we'll cross that solution's crossing when there, we get you to it. there you go <laughs> so um we're gonna take a quick break and come back and talk about the movie. Do you have an idea for an episode? Tell us what it is. Tweet at us, find us on Instagram, follow us for updates and general musings at Lit2Lens. This was the precise moment that Dermot found me. Oi, Timothy. Ah, Dermot. Bad news inexorably does. Fucking waste. Never forget Herman Melville writes a ripping yarn about a big white whale which is summarily dismissed, and yet today it is lugged around in the backpacks of every serious student of literature in the world. I don't give a fuck what happens when I'm dead. I want people to buy me book now. Well, as your publisher, obviously nothing would make me happier. But sadly, for whatever reason, Knuckle Sandwich has yet to connect to its audience. You want a reason? I'll give you a reason. Right there. Ah. <laughs> oh. You mean Mr. Finch? Felix fucking Finch. The content shadow over me book in his pantsy fucking magazine. It wasn't that bad. No! Mr. Huggins should apologize to the trees failed for the making of his bloated autobio novel. 400 vainglorious pages expire in an ending that is flat and inane beyond belief. Steady now. What is a critic but one who reads quickly, arrogantly, but never wisely? Dermot. Ladies and gentlemen, we have... An additional award tonight, fellow book fairies. An award for most eminent critic, Mr. Oh, beg pardon, Sir 
Felix Fitch. O, B, and E. And what might my prize be, I wonder? A signed copy of an unpulped knuckle sandwich. Can't be many of those left. <laughs> well? Just what does that leadless pencil you call in imagination have in mind to end this scene? Hmm? I think you're gonna love this one. <laughs> <laughs> And we're back. Thank you from that word from either Eric or I or whoever it was. But now you know where you can find us and what to do. Yep. Rate and review. Thank you. So, Eric, we have some jokes. We do have jokes. Are you ready? I am ready. Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Well, I think we decided last time that my joke was funnier. So you got to save the the punchline for the end. Unconfirmed that that was what <laughs> was decided. But I will I will go first for you. So, what do millennials say when they experience microaggressions in the workplace? I do not know. I will not be subjected to criminal abuse. What section is that from? It's from two different sections. It's oh. from Tim. Well, it's actually just Timothy Cavendish. But then Sonmi watches the movie, and that's Tom Hanks. That's my favorite scene in the movie where Tom Hanks does Play. it really dramatically and like over the top. That's what it, Can you do the accent with it? The British one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I don't think I can. <laughs> you really, really, you were like thinking about it. and it, you're, you, I don't know. Your you mind like, was like halfway there. I need like what you said before we started. I need a word to like get me into the British. A wobbly. A wobbly. I will not be subjected to criminal abuse. That's good. Clip that. <laughs> Clip it. Chop it up. <laughs> Clip that. Clip that audio. Um, All right. Tell me yours. Okay. If Cloud Atlas was a type of cloud, what type of cloud would it be? Uh, uh, a, a rain cloud. No. It would be super cirrus. What? A super cirrus cloud. Because the oh, book is very super serious. book is very serious. Are, are there cirrus clouds? Yeah, is that of course a thing? there are cirrus clouds. <laughs> there are many different types of clouds. Interesting. Some are serious, some are less serious than others. <laughs> They're very serious clouds. Yeah. That's true. This was a very serious book. Right. Thank you. Okay. I got it. There you go. <laughs> My jokes are not for uh, people who want easy humor. They want hard humor. They want to, they're like, wait, <laughs> they need me to explain the humor to them. And that's you, the kind of humor they want. You know who your audience is? Meteorologists. Yeah. That's your entire audience. I took a meteorology class. In college. Did you know that? Did you really? Yeah. Which, uh, UVA? No. Or Nova? At Nova. Shout out. Yeah. Um, he worked, f the, the professor worked for NASA and he was just doing this sort of like a Jill Biden thing. Like Jill Biden teaches at, I think she teaches English at Nova. Are you serious? Um, but like Nova has some great professors. Yeah, they do. Shout they out really Nova. Do. Like, well, I, I had great professors. I did too. And this guy, NASA. That's he just crazy. was like teaching meteorology to a bunch of kids that didn't give a shit. <laughs> it was i was like man that's awesome well did you give a shit yeah that's why i made this joke 
I remember what Sirius Clouds were. Do you remember what the guy's name was? I do not. Okay. I was going to shout him out, but. Yeah. I don't remember any of the guys' names or girls' Except names. Except for, oh, actually, I don't know that kid's name either. We had a calculus class together. I don't know if you remember this. The guy had, like, super tall red hair. I re- no, I don't remember. I, I know remember... what you're going to say. We don't need to talk about him. <laughs> the jazz the history professor. Of, history of jazz professor. <laughs> that guy was a psychopath. But that was and let's leave it at that. Literally the most entertaining class. Anyways, we're gonna move on. <laughs> so we're gonna talk about the film here, Cloud Atlas. Um, Eric, in your opinion, was the adaptation successful? I think as a Cloud Atlas adaptation, it was. I think I recognized this as Cloud Atlas. I saw it as Cloud Atlas. I watched the movie and I was like, you know what? This is the book I read. It's 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 got everything. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like you ever watched at the SNL jokes with stefan who would come on yes yes like this movie has everything oh my god (laughs) a chest full of doubloons (laughs) barbara streisand yeah i could have gone for three but i'm not yeah but yeah i mean i think everything that you wanted out of this book in the movie Mm -hmm. in terms of ideas in terms of plot points was there so it was a very little adaptation i don't know that it was necessarily a successful adaptation Mm mm-hmm like for me, I don't know. I give it, I give it three stars on Letterboxd. You can find oh, me. Did you? you can find me on Letterboxd. People. I will. Um, only three. Only three. I don't know. To me, it was a very like preachy movie. Mm-hmm. It was a movie where people say things like "My life extends far beyond the limitations of me," or "Why do we keep making the same mistakes over and over?" or "Our lives and choices are understood from moment to moment." At each point of intersection, each encounter suggests a new direction. Lots of cheesy quotes in this movie, for yeah. sure. And I think it's one thing to read those. It's another thing to see somebody speaking them. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It, it's a lot more cheesy, especially if the actor doesn't do it right. Yeah. Um, to but see Acting in this movie? Also not. They didn't get, like, the A-team. I, I, th- I will say uh, I thought Ben Wyshaw was good as Robert Frobisher. And the guy who played Vivian Ayers, as well as Timothy Cavendish. Uh, Jim Broadbent. He's really fucking good. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, Tom Hanks was like... Fine? Yeah, he was pretty good. Halle Berry was like less so. Um, Jim uh, Jim Sturgis? Yeah, you don't like this guy. I don't like Jim Sturgis. Is that because of twenty? his performance in 21? I actually like 21, yeah. but I don't think he's very good. Yeah. I, I mean, just think he breathes too much. I wish he would what? breathe less. <laughs> He has to have oxygen. Yeah, but he could use less. <laughs> is he like a, a, a loud breather to you? Or Yeah. He's like... <sighs> I, I listen to him talk, and I just think of like... So the way 21 works is that you flip two cards. I can't, I can't do his accent. But I all, I all I can think about when I listen to Jim Sturgis is just breath. Interesting. I'll have and to... it really bothers me. I'll have to watch one of his movies again. I mean, he only has a couple. Is this probably because 21. he breathes too much? <laughs> Do you think his agent's like, "Hey, chill on the breathing. Maybe hold your breath more." Maybe you might get more jobs. I would be interested to know what's what. What are like the top five weirdest things agents have told their clients oh to do God. to get more jobs? It, independent of like fixing your skin or your body yeah, or like whatever cosmetic, like. Like, can you walk with, can you like straighten your posture so that yeah. you don't look as weird? Can you like figure out how to write with your left hand just yeah. for this role? Right. I don't know. 
I would be. In, I'm sure there's a bunch. Of I'd be interested stuff. in that. Yeah. yeah. So if anyone has a list like that, yeah, at uh, littlelands at gmail.com. Tweet us or Gmail us. Um. So. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think there was definitely something about the movie that was a little bit more tiring than the book. Like in terms of like just like the speechifying, the like telegraphing. This is our purpose. Yeah. These are how we are connected. You can you can probably get away with that more in a book because it takes longer to read it. I mean, it takes you several hours, maybe a dozen or more to read a book. So you're with the characters more. So you come across these same ideas or same whatever. Um, the same amount probably, but less often. As a movie is three hours, you hit it every 12 minutes or whatever it is. Yeah. Our lives are not our own. And then you cut to, you know, the next section with Sanmi and it's like, oh, you're, this is what they do with your body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your life is literally not your own. It's ours. It belongs to the corporation. Thank (laughs) you so much. Thanks for playing. (laughs) Corporations. You're like, I got it. Capitalism is horrible. I got it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And it is certainly force fed. Um, We all voted for Warren here. We're busting down the monopolies. (laughs) We get it. Corporations are bad. Let's go. Move on. I didn't but Amazon, I got an order. These mics came from Amazon, so I'm not sure we should hate on capitalism too much. I ordered uh, plush toys for you were here for my dog whose birthday is tomorrow. When are they coming? Between 4:30 and 8 a.m. <laughs> Can you imagine if they show up at 4:30? Dude, knock on your door. Hey, here are your plush toys. Yeah, enjoy. What a great service. I know you needed these. Um, but so I wanted to. The movie's complicated, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it might be helpful to break down some of the changes section over section. Yes, good idea. Um, just because a lot happens. A lot happens, and there's six different stories. Um, so bear with us. If yeah. you're interested in the differences, please listen along. Um, if you're not, just go ahead and fast forward. So, yeah. Or watch the movie. You should probably watch the movie. Probably watch the movie. And then so, come back. Yeah, exactly. Um, Let's start with Adam Ewing. Adam Ewing. So this is a story told, as we mentioned, as a diary, the diary of Adam Ewing. Um, he's a lawyer. He lives in San Francisco during the gold rush. He washes up on the shore of these Pacific islands, um, and he is waiting for a ship to be repaired. Mm-hmm. He is with his you know, crewmates. He sees a, I don't know if it's a slave, but it's like a sub, sub, subjugated. It's definitely a slave. He's definitely a slave. Yeah. I don't know what, like, for what if it's from um the people who are coming to this island from the ship or the people who live there but yeah he's certainly a slave yeah so his name is atua he's being whipped um and he makes eye contact with adam ewing while he's being whipped and they sort of have this moment um later adam ewing while he's exploring falls into a crater a volcanic crater maybe mm-hmm. and gets injured uh his friend dr goose <laughs> Some of the names in this in this book are kind of silly. Yeah. yeah, he um he treats him, and Adam says, "Well, I've got this other condition that I've just like heard all the time," and Doctor Goose says, "Well, that's because you have like a a parasite in your brain that's killing you. Uh, take this treatment, and you'll be fine." So, so they switch this in the movie. He doesn't fall down a crater; he just gets like heat exhaustion. Yes, from being outside, cause, and which is ridiculous because he's wearing a top hat and like a. A, co- a coat and stuff in this like pacific island yeah so that was funny but no you're you're definitely right um so, so he starts getting treated by dr goose he starts getting treated by dr goose 
and it turns out well while he's being treated he's not like on his deathbed or anything but he's being treated he learns more about how the colonizers are oppressing the native pacific people um but at some point he realizes that dr goose is poisoning him for Mm -hmm. whatever money he may or may not have with him it's the gold rush after all right what do you expect from this guy from san San francisco he probably has gold um he is rescued before he is killed by atua which clarifies for adam ewing that he should be an abolitionist um for the rest of his life and he imagines a conversation with his father-in-law where he says as much yeah and that section ends yeah so the film version is like i mentioned there's one um, instance of change uh with the creator there but there really isn't that much difference um i think there is a bit a bit of difference here okay. um tell me so in the in the book he's rescued by the slave right. who he helped like he's a, the slave ends up being a stowaway on the boat as they leave right and he's like hey no this guy can actually help us don't just throw him overboard mm-hmm. allow him to be a crew member and he's allowed to be a crew member he fights off dr goose i can't like i can't believe we keep saying dr yeah, goose no. um he fights off dr goose and like fills adam full of seawater that makes him throw up the poison that's right in the movie he throws off dr goose enough that adam can like get up and whack dr goose in the head with that's his true Tre- not his treasure chest but his like personal chest mm-hmm. which in the book doesn't happen but also in the book that his chest is empty that's right and the movie his chest is full of gold oh that's right that's right so it turns out that he either a made money off of the gold rush or b is part of the slave trade because mm-hmm. they do show his conversation with his father-in-law he like reunites with his wife he goes to see his father-in-law and is like i'm an abolitionist now and his father-in-law it seems to me is a slave trader yeah. Right. That's my read on it. That. Yeah. So, so it's, in the movie, it's more dramatic at the end because he confronts him and throws the contract or whatever it was yeah. in the fire. Tells him, um, "What is a notion but a multitude of drops?" And you know, I'm going to join the abolitionist movement, and I can't, in good conscience, participate in this kind of reckless activity. Essentially, slave slavery. Um, yeah, you're right. I forgot about the the chest that was full. Uh, in the movie, he like throws it at him and it like kills him. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was empty in the book. So there is. You know why? Because you can just throw money at your problems. Well. Well, money. That's the lesson baby. there. That's the lesson there. <laughs> but it's 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 interesting that they added that and that, and that you caught that because it, that changes his character significantly, doesn't it? Yeah. So to me, he's a little bit worse of a guy. Yeah. Right. But it also makes Reddit the same way. It makes his transformation at the end a little bit more impactful. That's true. Because before you don't really know, I don't think you really get a sense of what his motivations are in the book. Other than that, he's kind of like a Darwin figure. Like he's just studying yeah. people. Same in the movie though. I, I, I never really got a sense of like what he's doing here on the ship. Um, as opposed to like just hanging out and, getting sick he doesn't really do anything yeah um he just kind of goes along for the ride and yeah. he gets sick and then he's in the in the stock bay or whatever they call it at the end like, yeah. throughout the whole, whole thing but yeah so adam ewing who's next robert frobisher this is our this is this is our section well this is the one i like this section a lot yeah um robert frobisher is a composer who is carrying out an affair with rufus sixsmith I finally got that name right. Struggle yeah. with that all the time. Um, 
So this is we must say this is the 1920s or 30s. 1920s or 30s. Um, um, there no, they're homosexual relationships. So obviously yeah, not welcomed, condoned, condoned right. back then. Um, he wants to be a composer, and he decides the best course for his career is to go find this old composer, once great Vivian R. Aris. Ayers, 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 Vivian, yeah. Vivian Ayers, um, and become his like aid essentially. He'll mm-hmm. help him transcribe his ideas and thoughts into music, and send those off. And he'll get experience and he'll get like clout in the great big composing circle of Europe at this time. They have some early success. I think they they write a composition, send it off, and it gets played to great acclaim in some of the concert halls in Europe. Mm-hmm. At one point, Vivian has a dream of a nightmarish cafe and robert while in a great flurry of creativity turns that into the cloud atlas sextet eventually that's what it's called um while he's there at the house he's reading from the pacific journal of adam ewing although he only really reads the first half of it for a long time because he can't find the second half (laughs) um while he's also while he's there he begins an affair with our heir's wife jocasta some of these names man they are they are not easy, um, and he also begins falling in love for their daughter Eva. He's a bit of a player. Yeah, he's sort of like Cristiano Ronaldo. It's just like I'll take what I can get, um, which is almost everything. Eventually, when the Cloud Atlas sextet is complete, he accuses heirs of plagiarism, who responds by effectively blackmailing him from the polite composer society. Frobisher moves to a hotel to um, wait for Eva make sure the sextet is still like in working condition um when it turns out that eva is actually not in love with him like he thinks she is he sends the full diary of adam ewing which he has put together and the sextet to rufus sixsmith before he eventually kills himself Mm -hmm. so that was a bit clunky but that's the section in a nutshell yeah so no that was good so some of the big uh differences um one being that eva is not in the movie at all Yep. So, and Riven Ayers is really old. Jocasta is relatively young in this one. I don't know what their ages are in the book. Um, and then... I think they're more similar. I think in the book, Ayers has syphilis. And so he's sort of like... Oh, he's, that's right. Sicker than he... And he's, I think he's blind in yeah, the book. Yeah, So he's a bit... More sickly. Like, yeah, he's more sickly. He's a wobbly, he's a wobbly. on his feet. <laughs> um. And then he also completes the sextet and releases it uh, by giving it to sending it to Robert Frobisher or Rufus Smith, I believe. And um, he also kills Vivian Ayers. Um, they have this argument where um, so previously in the story, in the film, Vivian Ayers has this melody in his head and he breaks into... Um, Robert Fisher's room in the middle of the night. And I think this happens in the, the book as well. Um, and actually he's sleeping with Jocasta at the time. So she gets under the covers or in the, in the closet. I can't remember. Yeah, that was pretty funny. And so Vivian Ayers comes in, he's like, da, 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 whatever, singing the melody or no, he doesn't sing it. I'm sorry. He does not sing it because he can't remember it. Um, it's on the tip of his tongue. And then Robert Fisher is like, well, it'll come to you later. And then later on, Robert Fisher is composing his own work on the piano. Um, and he's playing this melody, this cloud Atlas sextet, as they call it. Um, and Vivian Ayers walks into the room and says, that's my melody. That's my melody. You must have like gotten that from me, essentially. And he's like, no, 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 no. I've been doing this on my own. This is my own work. 
um and he's like well it must have been a product of you like staying with me as interesting so he basically like t- tries to take credit for this like beautiful piece of work he says can't be yours or mine it is ours it is ours yeah so frobisher reluctantly agrees because he doesn't really have much of a choice because he's staying at this guy's house um eventually later on that night uh robert frobisher, robert frobisher tries to kiss vivian Ayers. um um, because he believes there's like this moment between them after they come to uh, an agreement on something. I can't remember. Yeah. And he doesn't even sleep with Jocasta during the film, does he? No. Well, he's like played as. So I tried to look at that scene and it looked like there might've been somebody in the bed, but it wasn't, it wasn't clear. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't think so. And then, um, so Vivian Ayers, who is not a homosexual or not bisexual, starts laughing and laughs in his face and blah, blah, blah. And, um, Frobisher is incredibly um, embarrassed and wants to leave immediately. Later on, he tries to he tries to leave. He doesn't care what his if his reputation is going to be tarnished. And um, there's a struggle. He points a gun at him. There's a struggle, and shoots Fivineers either by accident or on purpose. Nobody really knows, and flees um, and is basically hiding out in London, I believe, or some big like your uh, big city in the UK, and um, yeah. While he's while he's fleed though, in the book he would be waiting for Eva. Although the book takes place in Belgium, but in the mm-hmm. in the movie version of it, he's still writing letters to Six Smith, and right. Six Smith, while Frobisher is still alive, comes to London to try to find him, and he goes like essentially right where he is, and um, Frobisher like watches him, studies him, sees what he's doing, and he's like, oh, that's really nice, right? Um, but uh, still pulls the trigger on himself and uh six myth is like in proximity to that shot i can mm-hmm. hear it and like rushes up yep and it's very tragic yeah just missing by a minute yeah if that so the, the ending i think here is a little bit more heart wrenching just because of like i don't know when there's a suicide it's one thing to have a suicide be told in a note it's another thing for an, another character to like witness it's not really a witnessing, but like he's he's in close proximity. Yeah, witnessing. He's the first one there, and he says like so. they're both each other's like loves, right? Yeah. So it's a little bit, I think, sadder in the movie version. In the book version, mm-hmm. Robert Frobisher seems to sleep with like anybody he wants to, right? Or can. Yeah, I mean, he certainly he certainly comes off as that type in, in both. Um, but yeah, a bit of a cad. A what? A bit of a cad. A cad. Yeah. Is that what like a uh, players or something yeah. never heard that um but yeah that was a great section um that was one of my favorites and this one is 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 a bit i feel like we, we sort of like we start important with adam ewing and then this section in terms of the overall narrative arc mm-hmm. is a bit like less so right like uh, the big themes here are what necessarily i guess they're mm-hmm. introducing the idea of interconnectivity like cloud atlas sextet is literally the name Mm, of the novel right that's not the sextet but you get a sense that it's six interconnected sections you you know that it's referenced it will be referenced later on by sonmi's nightmarish cafe that she works in so it does drop that little easter egg or whatever you want red herring um is that right red herring that's probably no like a foreshadow okay yeah and then um yeah, that's kind of it. I mean, 
I mean, you, you, we will be introduced to a uh, older Rufus Six Smith in the next story, or in two stories in the Louisa Ray section. Uh, but yeah, it sort of like sets up more of the novel. It doesn't really like like a glue section. Yeah, it's a glue section. Yeah. Like so, that. oh, I wanted to say, so the term um, for Robert Frobisher's role uh, to Vivian Ayers is a amanuensis. 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 A m a n u e n s i s. So that's basically somebody who like is like a scribe or like a something like that. Also, a sextet is a, is a group of six people playing music or singing together. So it wasn't really a sextet. Maybe, maybe well, it could be like six instruments. Or maybe it was meant to be played as a sextet. We'll never know. I'm just saying that's what Google said. All right. So everything's connected. Everything's a fraud. Um, so the next section, next section actually is Lu- Louisa Ray. Yep. Um, Louisa Ray is a journalist working for a cut rate magazine called Spyglass. Right, Spyglass. Yep. Spyglass. Yeah. Yep. Um, her father is a famous Vietnam War correspondent, which sort of weighs heavy on her own personal history. Mm-hmm. One day, she runs into Rufus Sixsmith, very same, on mm-hmm. an elevator, who provides her with an explosive secret about um, the work he does with this company named Seaboard's Hydra Nuclear Power Plant. Seventies conspiracy Except- thriller. Yes. Let's go. Yeah. Um, he has written a report that says basically it's not safe. It's going to fail. It's going to be bad. And it was swept under the rug before she can act on this information. Before she even can even get the report, six Smith is killed. Um, and she actually ends up finding the body or being near the body or being at the body while it's still like hot. Yeah. And right. um, she's able to gather some of the letters from Robert Frobisher to Rufus six Smith. Mm-hmm. Some of them, not all of them. Um, in addition, another seaboard employee, Isaac Sachs, provides her with a copy of the report. Um, but while she is in possession of this report, she's forced off a bridge in her car by a hitman of the seaboard company. Mm-hmm. And the report is lost. At the same time, Sachs blows up a plane with seaboard CEO on board and a bunch of other execs, um, creating sort of a chaotic situation in which the power void is filled by a different executive, one who has different motivations for Mm -hmm. his seat um she louisa ends up finding a second copy of the report which is uh booby trapped i think is the word (laughs) and barely escapes that scene with her life she then finds a third copy of the report on six smith's boat and is able to expose seaboard she then gets the remaining robert frobisher letters from six smith's niece she wins she gets the letters we win. That's it. That's it. We now win. that I, I'm reading that and I'm seeing that there was like another copy, another copy, another copy. What are we doing with all these copies? There's a lot of copies. There's a lot of cleanup for that company. I think of that as like a plot. I mean, so I know this is meant to be a mystery thriller yeah. in the novel as a novel. Right. But it's sort of convoluted, right? Yeah. It's sort of too many copies. To we have of- one copy. Oh, and it's gone. Don't worry. There's another copy. <laughs> oh, that one's gone. But wait, there's another copy. Oh my god. <laughs> and you know, it, it, when you were uh, so eloquently receiving that, or I can't even speak right now, returning that story to me, um, I was reminded back when uh, in the movie they go to the where Rufus Sixsmith goes to the locker and puts the story in the locker and is very scared. 
they don't return to that locker in the movie. Right? No, I guess not. I, I think in the in the book they do, right? That's the yeah, booby-trapped right. area. But they just like leave that copy. Maybe that was a copy he left for his niece. That's possible. Could be. Because the niece, in the end of the, mo- in the, end of the movie version, the niece uh, and um, Obisa Ray meet at a museum or something and uh, exchange the report for le- the letters. Yeah. Louisa gets the full... She finds the full set of letters under his dead body. Yeah. Um, and then she gives the letters to the niece, and then the niece gives uh, the report to Louisa Ray and says, make him pay. So she does. Yeah. I think the big differences between these two sections or these two the book in the movie is that it's just much less convoluted. Mm-hmm. Like she gets the first copy of the report from Isaac. She gets forced off the bridge. Isaac still blows up the plane. We're not really sure who's on the plane. We just assume it's important, but right. it's not really shown to us. Right. Um, but there's no second and third copy of the report. There's just one other copy that she eventually finds. It's, it's kind of, it's also kind of like dumb, but <laughs> yeah. I think a mystery novel is also probably kind of dumb. Yeah, I mean, they, you have to have like things like that to sort of get get your way to the ending that you want, right? So, yeah, this one I think is important narratively because it sets up the idea of a corporation as a big, big player in the world. Yeah, this is probably the most clear example of a corporation sort of like doing what they want and kind of getting away with it. Yeah. Um, whereas in the other sections, it's it's less it's more indirect it's not it's less direct yeah in that Un- sense unchecked greed right yeah right um so timothy cavendish please. timothy cavendish um the, the funniest section by far mm-hmm, for he sure. is a book publisher and in this section we are reading his memoirs um although he has designs one day they may well be turned into a movie one of his authors dermot hoggins mm-hmm. i keep wanting the name just doesn't roll off the tongue as as much as I want to. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. Um, he, they're at a party. He throws a respected reviewer off the roof (laughs) and he splatters. He has a very funny line of dialogue. It's a great scene. Uh, it's a very go for it. Tom Hanks performance. Yeah. It's, if I'm Tom Hanks and I'm playing six roles, one of the roles is going to be fun. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think he, yeah, he probably took this role and was like, I'm just going to like go for it. And, you know, didn't really hit it. But I'm sure he had fun doing it. Yeah. And that's the most important part. As long as you're having fun. Yeah. We support that. So he, he throws this reviewer off the roof. Um, the sales of his book, Knuckle Sandwich, uh, go gangbusters, although he's in prison. Because of the story. The media picks it up. Yeah. It's like, hey, uh, basically it's like marketing, like, hey, uh, a book author throws his reviewer, bad reviewer off the, yeah. off the ledge. He becomes notorious and it's it's a whole to do it's great um his three like i don't know gangbangy brothers come and accost timothy cavendish and say hey you made a bunch of mo- you made a bunch of money off of this book where is it mm-hmm. and timothy says i don't have it um we're like all right well come back we're gonna come back tomorrow right. and you're gonna give me the money right he goes timothy goes to his brother who is wealthy and says hey can you give me some money and he says no, but I sure can. Give me a day or two, and I'll put you in a safe place until that happens. Where he ends up putting him is a old folks' home in a different part of England. Yeah, but it's one that you can't leave. Yeah, it's like a old folks' home from hell. Yeah, yeah. There's a very like tough nurse. Um, it's very Noakes. Yeah, Nurse Noakes. 
very one floor of the cuckoo's nest. Mm-hmm. Um, so f- while he's at the nursing home, he has a copy of the first half of the Luiso Ray mystery series yep. that he's reading and considering publishing. Um, he is also at the same time trying to figure out how to break out. He eventually hooks up with some guys and girls who also want to break out. They successfully do break out. Um, they go to a pub where they are caught by Noakes and her cronies and uh, a crew of drunk Scottish guys save the day from the Brits that are trying to get them. Yeah. It's pretty similar in the, in the film. There's not a lot of differences. Um, there is the part thrown in about why his brother throws him into uh, this nursing home from hell because he, um, I guess, slept with or had a relationship with uh, his wife. So naughty from the brother for doing that. This is his punishment, which, you know, fair enough. Um, but yeah, the rest of it is pretty... Pretty chalk. Pretty chalked up. Um, there is a scene in the book, I suppose, where he is not yet at the old person home. Look, he like realizes he's near the house of one of his old flames. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, I should go by and look and see if she's still there. Right. She is like, wow, what a great, what a great thing. Maybe I should reconnect with her. Never does. Right. In the movie, the whole thing happens, and he ends up reconnecting with her. Very yeah. strangely, I thought. But yeah, it wasn't explained at all. There there was the scene that you just described about him going to the person's house, the woman's house and then just like leaving. But then later on at the conclusion of the story in the movie, they're just like sitting together at a, on the couch or something and having a grand old time. But like, there was never any scene about them reconnecting, which would have been a great scene uh, to see, honestly. But that's true. They were just like, yeah, they're together now. I'm sure they probably filmed that. And then we're just, we, we can't go over three hours. Like, we just can't have this scene. Sorry. <laughs> We're already at our limit. Yeah. I mean, at the end, it doesn't really matter. It's just like, it's a shortcut. Yeah. Right. And it's like a bit of a shortcut. And then in the in the book, he has a stroke. But in the film, he... No stroke. No stroke. So, yeah. minor detail, I guess. Yeah. Unless you're having a stroke. But... Then it's not a minor detail. <laughs> right. So, Sun Me 451. Yeah. And I'll try to pick up with the pace, but Sun Me 451 is a fabricant which is sort of like a clone um and she works at a fast food restaurant called papa songs which i kind of thought was like a mcdonald's yeah it felt like a mcdonald's or like a burger king whatever yeah um and they are in a neo korean state called nia so corpos mm-hmm. she is the, the framing of this section is she's telling she's being interviewed by an archivist into an was it an orison or an orison orison like a, a little device that records interviews basically yeah but on video um the backstory here is that after 12 years fabricants can ascend which in a funny way is literally them being retired to hawaii but at the same time they become uh like self-aware enough so they're almost like kind of human Mm -hmm. um, but not quite right so that's the sort of like hook for the life of a fabricant Mm -hmm. um sonmi is ascended and she becomes a interest of a group of graduate students mm-hmm. or i guess she goes to school she yes. goes to graduate school to learn a little more yes. while she's there she hooks up with this group of graduate students who are interested in her and like help her study yeah. and she's helpful to them it turns out of course all is not what it seems right. one of the graduate students is the leader of a group called the union mm-hmm. um which is a rebel unit 
a rebel I was gonna say a rebel union. Rebel group, I guess. A rebel group that yeah. essentially wants to have all the fabricants ascend so that the corporate state which controls new Korea uh can't have cheap controllable labor to yeah. continue to manufacture its power. Yeah, it'll be less powerful. Yeah. Um she Sonmi four five one writes a series of declarations that just speak about rebelling and oppression mm-hmm. and power. Um, but the union is eventually quelled. She is eventually captured. And she reveals at the end that she knows that the union is actually a government entity that is like for all the malcontents to go to so that the government can like see what they're doing and control them. So when you read that in the book, were you like confused? I was, I was very confused. Yeah, I was just like, what a weird... Because that happens on like the last couple of pages, like maybe the last page or two um, of that section. It's just like, what a weird thing to throw in there at the very end. Like It's, it's just like a literal, literal wrench just thrown at the end of that story. Because you're going in this one direction, and then you're just like, oh, it, it was all just a ploy. Well, it didn't really do anything. It was like, yeah, we know about the union folks. We just we keep them over in the union land, and uh, right. that's fine. Yeah, like, well, you're not doing anything with them. And it didn't really right. explain their reasoning for it um like the the government's reasoning for doing that i thought yeah i think they they cut that out of the movie right yeah that wasn't that was not referenced in the movie yeah so it's more or less like her declarations in the book are i think a book or they're like a a a treatise like a series of articles or whatever whether they are a book in the film version i think in the book as well as as the sun me prayer book that susan sarandon's character reads but like their declarations are her just audio clips, right? Oh, right, because she in Slusha's the in the next section. Yeah. Okay, I think so. Okay, yeah. So for whatever reason or how, however, they reverberate throughout history and were collected as like this, basically like a Bible. But yeah, so in the book they're like I think actually written things, but in the movie, oh yeah, you're right that she like speaks them over a loudspeaker. Mm-hmm while there's a battle going on. Right. Although it seems like a very small battle and she's speaking over loudspeaker to like all of the country, I suppose. Yeah. And then somebody must record them and pass them on through history. Yeah. It's not very confusing because they were in South Korea, but they go to Hawaii to do this for some reason. Yeah. So the ship gets raided, right? And then it ends the union. I can't remember. I think that's it. Because in the book, the union leader takes Sonmi to a ship and says, look oh, you're right. at all the fabricant bodies. That was it on the ship. That's right. Yeah. Because right. w- one of the reveals is that fabricants, when they do, quote unquote, ascend, right. don't actually get retired to Hawaii. They get processed the into soap, soap, which they then have to eat. Yeah. And which is cannibalism, which we'll get into in a little bit. Yeah. So quickly on the last section, this is called Slucius Crossing. It stars doesn't star it leads by this guy named zachary mm-hmm. um zachary his people live in a post-apocalyptic society and worship a goddess a goddess called sonmi i'm doing a lot of talking this episode it's kind of it's hard for my, <laughs> it's hard You're for doing my great, mouth to make all these words <laughs> uh they live on the big island in hawaii they recall a fall in which the civilized peoples of earth were destroyed and the survivors are essentially left to primitivism Yes. Which is why the reading in this book is very strange. Yeah. Yes. Their island is occasionally visited by a 
uh, very like technologically advanced people called the prescience. Mm -hmm. Um, One of them, a woman called Marinim has come to learn their ways and decides to stay with Zachary and his mom and his sister. Mm -hmm. She's like a studying abroad basically. Right. (laughs) She's like, where did you study abroad? Uh, Hawaii. Big Island. Um, He's suspicious of her, sneaks into her room, finds an, I already forgot what we said, Orison. Yes. um, Which is a device that recorded Sonmi, but Mm -hmm. is also a device used to transmit like person to person. Right. Um, So he sees what's happening on the device and trusts her less. Later on, Zachary's sister is stung by a poisonous fish. He asks Meridim to help him, although it's against her personal creed to do so. Mm -hmm. She does. In exchange, Zachary leads her to the tip of a mountain, which is where she needs to go. Um, While they are there, they find an observatory. And in the observatory, they essentially listen to Sonmi's declarations um, and learn a little bit about that. When they return from the observatory they realize that zachary's people have all been attacked most of them have been attacked mm-hmm. um Marinim says come with me i'll take you to we don't have prescient land because actually it's all destroyed but you can live with me and he says no i'm gonna stay here on the island and be with my few people um and that's really how the story ends it, there's sort of like a confusion whether or not what's happening is true or not right but that's sort of that's probably the big ending or the big difference is the ending in the film and the book is um, Zachary stays in the book on the island. Whereas in the movie, he goes with Marinim and the prescience to whatever world that they're from. It's a different world. It's not earth. And, and it's not destroyed like it, it is in the book. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, they have like a family together and they have kids and stuff. And, um, but yeah, I mean, that was probably for everything else it was probably pretty chalked up um but another one where tom hanks as zachary not another one but tom hanks as zachary gets with Halle berry good for him man so it's It's also we i guess in the book it's being told by his son right yeah and it's not that's not the case and it's old tom old zachary is recalling this part of his life to his grandchildren or children yeah, I'm not sure. Probably grandchildren because they're so old, but and they're little. Yeah. yeah, but unconfirmed. Yeah, so the framing's a little bit different, but yeah. it, this one's very similar. This one's very similar. But it ties into one of your big themes. Um, the difference between the book and the and the film is is this theme of love. Yes. And its presence in the film and less so in the book. So yeah. talk to me about that. There's just a lot of love. A lot of damn people are finding love in this in this movie God damn. and i'm you know what well i'm not gonna stand for it so we talked about timothy cavendish getting back with his ex for yep. reasons that are not really that clear mm-hmm. adam ewing connects with his wife in the movie he doesn't I, I assume he has a wife in the book but he doesn't even think about her at the end he's mm-hmm. more thinking about what his father-in-law is going to say about him being an abolitionist mm-hmm. um Sony me 451 has i think this is the only sexual encounter in the movie but she has sex with the union leader. So the act- she actually does. I reread it. She does have sex with the union leader in the book as well. Okay. But, but it's less of a love thing, I think. It's more... Connection. Connection. Isn't that love? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> well, you figure out what it was, and then let me know. Um, so she has sex with the union leader. 
uh, Zach and Marinim get together in the Slusha's Crossing final yep. section. Right. And then uh, Robert Frobisher, weirdly, has love stories cut out. Yeah, that's true. But his his story is a love story. Um, Louisa, however, is not. Yeah. So I think it's pretty fair to say that the movie is more concerned about love than in the book. Mm-hmm. And I think that's I didn't I just don't think that's right. Yeah, they I think they kind of play with this idea that love transcends time and place. Time and place, I guess. Um it is reincarnated, I guess, in the same people later on down the road. Um but the, yeah, they didn't really play with that idea in the book at all. It wasn't really about that. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's wrong. And we talked about this last time, but I I am of the opinion that love represents a connection to someone else Mm -hmm. and it represents a a feeling and a realization of someone else Mm -hmm. other than yourself and i think a lot of the book is about how we fell as a society Mm -hmm. because adam ewing starts with like you know scientific discovery here we're realizing that like one species is worse than another because they don't have like care or love for man right i just think love as a theme interesting sort of downplays the idea of why we have fallen i i can see what you're saying there and you know i'm thinking about the movie and how it plays so like the book and the movie kind of are opposite in the, the way that they end um and in the movie it's a kind of of a more hopeful like cheerful ending you're on this new planet you're with these new kids they all love each other blah 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 blah. but in the book you don't really get the same feeling you kind of get the opposite feeling right i mean maybe at the end of the book you get the abolitionist movement this like hopeful rise to freedom but it's it's different than it's much different than that in the, in the film i suppose it depends on how you think about an ocean Is are it, you are you good with like a drop in the ocean or do you realize that like your drop in the ocean is actually not very much? I want gallons. Yeah, so you you're probably reading it very uh like a glass cor- glass cor- one drop full. <laughs> I have a very corporatic view on things. Yeah. So I think I think the story can probably be read either way. I think it probably wants to be read pot like I think it wants to be a positive story, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's like, well, what's an ocean but a multitude of drops right so i can i'm part of like a bunch of drops so if if we're all connected drops are all connected you can there's like there's you know you can do something yeah right if you just think of yourself as a drop in an ocean then it's then the odds are very much stacked against you but if you think of the ocean as a bunch of drops then you realize like okay we all have Mm -hmm. power right And and i think it's playing with this idea of like I do this one good thing. The good will outlast the evil eventually. You can do all these evil things, but if you know enough of us do these good things, you know, through time, you know, him abandoning his post and joining the abolitionist movement, um, Louisa Ray and her reporting, uh, almost getting killed, um, all these people doing these good things will eventually lead to something for the good of all or whatever yeah that's kind of how i look at it i look at it less optimistically 
I think a lot of these characters are concerned with their output. Um, like, what am I creating? What am I doing? Mm-hmm. How can I do it? Right. And I mean, you might not agree with this, obviously. I mean, you don't have to. We're not. Neither of us are David Mitchell, so we're just talking about David Mitchell. That's true. But I, I don't know. I just I think that love, making love a message complicates the larger Cloud Atlas message of mm-hmm. we sort of like turned our back on this when it was happening. Yeah. And if if we're okay with love, and I mean the book is not not okay with love. It's just like not brought. It's not push to the fore mm-hmm. if, if we're okay with love then we're then we like are focused on other people and i think right. part of the thing with the book is that like we weren't focused on people and that's why we fell mm-hmm. that's just my that's just my like no i think that i think that makes sense um i just wish you had a more optimistic optimistic view of love man like that you know i don't nothing about me is optimism <laughs> i'm a drops in the ocean kind of guy <laughs> not an ocean full of drops <laughs> Kind of guy. So let's talk about cannibalism. Smooth transition. Yeah. I'll set you up for this. So I think in a, a lot of these stories, Will, um, there is a hunger that's just bubbling under the surface of the words. Can you tell us about that? It's a hunger for meat. The, the weaker meat and the strong do eat. So cannibalism is a weird theme that keeps popping up in this book and moving. Um, it shows up in the Adam Ewing in the first story where Dr. Goose is technically poisoning Adam Ewing because he wants to steal his gold that he believes is in his chest. But he also references uh, the quote that I just mentioned, this, the weaker meat and the strong do eat, um, which is a weird thing to say um, to someone. There's also uh, in the not the Frobisher or the Louis Ray, but the Timothy Cavendish story you mentioned one scene. Um, you have to remind me of what he says exactly, but he's basically trying to escape the first time from the nursing home and he's running by this glass full of um, these old people who are looking out as him trying to escape. And he says something like, Soylent Green are people. And Soylent Green is a movie from back in the day, right? Where it's basically a product that is created, but it's from human remains, right? Yeah. So they process humans into food. And the big twist in that movie is that Charleston Hessen realizes that the Soylent Green food that people are eating is actually people. Yeah, which is gross. Yeah. Um, so, and as Eric is looking this up on his greatest movie quotes board... Um, this also occurs in the Summary 451 section where the fabricants um, only food supply is a thing called soap. Um, and as Eric mentioned earlier, soap is created from fabricants being essentially grinded up uh, into this like liquid uh, milkshake kind of thing. Um, so the fabricants eat their their themselves, uh, which is a form of cannibalism. And then Eric, would you like to tell us this quote? Yeah, so I have a poster that is the 101 greatest movie quotes and number 77 on the list is Soylent Green is people from the film Soylent Green 1973. I'm glad that you had that. Yeah. This is actually a nice poster. It's like laminated kind of or something. Yeah. looks heavy. It looks like you, you know, you're having a, Oh, 40 bucks, 39 99. Excuse me. Kirkland's. It was on sale for 24 99. <laughs> trying to get it is a good it. poster. 
That's nice. But I, I don't know where to hang it up, so I haven't hung it up yet. And it's, it's literally proven its use in this episode. So. Yeah, I don't know how many of the books... There, there are quite a few adaptations on this list. Maybe we should knock out the top ones, but yeah, we'll get there. And then, if, and then also, in Slusha's Crossing, the Kona people, which is like this barbaric tribe that runs through and pillages and rapes and kills people, um, also eats people and licks up blood. That there's a scene in the movie where uh, um, I think it's Hugh Grant. He like slices somebody's neck and then is he a kona he's he's the main kona oh jesus and he like slices their neck um and then licks the blood from the blade it's disgusting i didn't do we not know that last time i feel like that i don't think we yeah i don't think i mentioned it but but what a weird kona chief yeah. what a weird th- theme to have recur throughout these stories i thought and you know i, I thought about it some more after we recorded and i thought it's another form of like oppression right it's it's a it's a form of oppression that um we do to ourselves essentially it's 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 a more direct a physical form of oppression exactly it's yeah. as opposed to like a corporatic form that just oppresses people financially or um societally um this is literally you're killing them and slicing their head off and then eating their remains yeah no that's a good point it, yeah it is a, a very physical manifestation of this idea of you are worse than me because I can literally eat you. I mean, it's very, it's very like base level earthen. I don't know. Like animals do this kind of stuff. Right. right? Exactly. There's a food chain. Right. And because I am able to eat you, you, dominate you you, to the point. Yeah. That like I'm higher than you on the food chain. Essentially. And therefore that has like parallels across society yeah you can read like inequality as part of a food chain yeah i mean because i have more money than you i can squash you i can make you eat your own i have money so i make the rules and therefore like in my rules you can't gain what i've gained right exactly yeah the weak are meat and the strong do eat i don't know amen saw me four five one yeah it's one of your things right and then so some other themes we want to talk about reincarnation and then greed and corruption i think the easier transition here is greed and corruption kind of a relevant theme throughout especially with so many 451 um that's where the unionists kind of rise against the corporate culture and want to bring down uh, their power by uh, basically exposing the truths the true truths if you will about their uh, business practices of basically reusing a labor force um which is I'm transported to Blade Runner 2049. It's a very similar idea. Um, but yeah, where else? I think L- Louisa Ray, when we talk about like energy, yeah. right? Like he who controls energy controls a lot of society. You mm-hmm. control prices on things. You control what people can do, what they can't do. Um, greed obviously is at play in the Adam Ewing section. Mm-hmm. Money. I mean, money talks everywhere in this in, yeah. in cloud atlas really right like yeah. robert frobisher is able to like is always asking for money yep louisa ray like never has money but she's trying to get it get the people that have money mm-hmm. um timothy cavendish obviously his entire section is about money mm-hmm. i mean it's not necessarily about greed but it sort of is with his sort of, yeah. um brother and uh, just how i guess 
publishing works. It's it's maybe a little bit meta mm, yeah. that one too. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean greed corruption is everywhere. Yeah. So it floats in the air like a like a dense cloud. Like a dense fog. Like a dense cirrus cloud? Well, we as we've learned about cirrus clouds, they are they're not very dense. They're, <laughs> they're like wisps of hair. Very flimsy. Yeah. Um so don't be greedy people. Don't be corrupt. Love. Love one another. But we also have reincarnation. What did you did you want to say something? About reincarnation? About anything. No, I mean this one I think is the if if you were to take something away from Cloud Atlas in like a high school book report, it would be the comet birthmark. Yeah, for sure. And it's like, okay, everybody's connected because they all have these bookmarks. I can't, I can't birth, believe we, we birthmarks. got over an hour into this podcast and just mentioned the comet. That's like is, one of the most important parts. Is it? For me. Yeah. I mean, I guess the, I, the movie actually ends with looking at Tom Hanks' head, right? And then looks up at the, the stars. And there's a comet that goes by. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was kind of cheesy. But yeah, so in the... <laughs> cheesy for some. I'll allow it. I'll allow it. <laughs> it, um... In the book, it's less obvious because they mention it in each story and then eventually you get it. But it's kind of it's it's visual in the movie. So it's a lot easier to like put the pieces together. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of what I was saying with like these good characters doing good things um, throughout time as they're reincarnated, um, doing good things as the next life. In this life, and the next life, and the next life, and the next life over time, eventually outweighs evil. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's reincarnation is kind of a, I think it's a Buddhist, right? Or it's a Hindu. Yeah. Uh, Eight thing. Noble Truths. Yeah. Oh, look at you. Somebody paid attention in school. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there's not really a lot to say other than that's kind of like the, the most, uh, probably the most heady theme that we, run across here it's kind of what pushes the story forward yeah and allows um all the characters to um sort of uh, make their own connections or to have their connections made for them however you want to look at it yeah um yeah i'm gonna ask you a question off script Uh what sections in this book do you think are real to the story so to, to set the scene a little bit, everybody has a connection with everybody else. Mm-hmm. But what of those connections is, is any of them actually real? So, Be, so yeah, explain it. I'm thinking of Louisa Ray. Uh-huh. Louisa Ray is a book, right? A mystery book in Timothy Cavendish's world. And Timothy Cavendish is a movie in Sunmi's world. Yeah. And Sunmi is, like the Bible or like a, a story that's been passed down in Slusha's world. But in Luis's world, Rufus Sixsmith is a real person. And, or he's a character in the Louisa book. Right. But how do we get his backstory then? Cause that's not told in the book. And then what about Adam Ewing? What his his journals are in Frobisher section. He reads Adam Ewing's So maybe journals. none of them are real. Maybe they're all just... Cause he, so Frobisher gives the journals at the end when he's dying to Sixsmith. So yeah. Sixsmith has... Dude, Sixsmith. The letters. He's got the letters, 
And the sextet. And Adam's you and Adam Ewing's journal. And the sextet. I think, and right? the sextet. Yeah. He has all three of those. Damn. That kind of sets up the rest of the book. And he loses his letters once he gets killed. He the sextet was released probably years earlier. And the journal was literally published. Right? Oh no, I'm sorry. It was it was published. It was but published. I think it was probably like a rare book. Yeah. But it's not really mentioned after afterwards. So the sex side is unheard by Halle Berry's character, Louisa Ray, in the uh, later story. Um, and the the letters don't really have any other real significance other than in the Louisa Ray story. So, they, so that stuff only is significant in the Louisa Ray story. Yeah, it all sort of comes to a head with her. Yeah, but before that, we have the Timothy Cavendish story. And he's essentially writing a memoir that will be turned into a novel. Or a movie, excuse me. So the original Little Lens is the <laughs> Timothy Cavendish. So what time period is that? Is that the eighties or nineties? Louis Ray? No, the Timothy the, Cavendish. Yeah, or that's is that like present day. Oh, that's present day. Okay. Yeah. Because he's reading the Louis Ray novel, which is in the film is written by Javier, um, who is like her buddy. Yeah. In the in the the Louis Ray story, it's just like a neighbor's like teenager that like keeps breaking in and they're like friends or whatever um but in the book i think it's written by somebody else i think you mentioned i think so i um, think so yeah it's funny that's an interesting question like which of these is real maybe none of them but if if i had to answer your question i would say that solution's crossing is probably real so that although that's just a story told by zachary's son so yeah it's actually not real they're all secondhand accounts right yeah so I, I I guess the point is that they're all called into question, but I feel like in the movie version of it, it's sort of like a Russian nesting doll in that they like yeah. they fit into the next real or unreal until you get to Slusha's Crossing. This is basically a book about storytelling. This is a book about storytellers. Yeah. All great novels will are about themselves. I was gonna Can you drop, write that down. I was gonna drop the mic, but. I don't want to break it. So I think that's I think that's what we've learned here. <laughs> it's a good question. I'm a yeah. So if anyone has an answer to this, it, honestly hit us up on. We actually love to hear your take. Yeah, please. Are any yeah. of these sections real? Yeah. I don't know. Let's ask David Mitchell. Let's get him on the podcast. He's yeah. He's busy. He's not that busy. So Eric, was this movie good? Um, I would say it was. It was definitely watchable. Mm. Um, I I don't feel any different about it having had two conversations with you about it. Mm, right. Okay. Like I sometimes I can talk myself in or out of things having talked about like mm. talking them through. Mm-hmm. But this one, I don't know. It felt it felt like pretty static to me. It was like you know, it was a really watchable movie, and it was also kind of annoying. Yep. in ways the book wasn't but would i recommend somebody watch it i probably would yeah i think it was and it, it was a i think we talked about this more last time but it was a short three hours it was i would agree with that yeah um i really enjoyed it i was a big fan of it when it came out i was like super hyped for it i get like for me personally i get hyped about movies probably about one movie a year which i'm like really excited to see um Unfortunately, there were no movies in 2020, but this was like one of my movies for 2012. 
um, which also had Prometheus in there. So it was a big year for movies for me. So, um, what was your movie for 2019? Um, what came out in 2019? Probably Once Upon a Time. No, probably not that. Are you big? You're not a big Tarantino fan. Not not super big. No. Um, but anyways, yeah, I really liked I really liked this movie. I'm a I'm a big sucker for epics with a great score that are like kind of heady like uh have like a big themes or trying to trying to answer like a big question kind of kind of deal that's why i was big on prometheus um and it was had a bunch of sci-fi in it so and it was incredibly entertaining um in my in my opinion did you find something no No. unless you're a big like frozen two guy no definitely not (laughs) that um but yeah, so I, I really enjoyed it. I probably probably will give it a four out of five, but I do understand its flaws in, in the fact that it's very interspersed and there's a lot of cutting. Um, yeah. But I think I, I do think that it, that kept me more engaged because it was a fast paced three hours. You know, you're only with these characters five ten minutes at a time, so you're constantly on the move. Um, so I kind of like that. I didn't like the at the beginning of the film where they just have like this like trailer almost they introduce all the characters and then they're like i think in the last pod that we recorded you mentioned that they had to do that in order to like explain i think it's yeah you're introducing all the storylines yeah and if without that to be interconnect uh, inner like cutting them would be probably confusing that's true yeah you have to tell tell the people what to pay attention to yeah uh, but yeah i liked it Love, love, I, I wouldn't go as far as say I loved it because you know you're not a big in love kind of guy, but no, that's what we learned today. <laughs> um, so before we close out, we have our hot take time, sponsored by Wendy's spicy chicken nuggets, four pieces for ninety nine cents. Eric, would you like to go first? Sure. My hot take this episode will is for a movie called Cloud Atlas. There were surely not enough clouds. I mean. The ending, it was a clear sky. A comet flew across. That's true. Um, I see the stars. In the book, in the section that I read to start the episode, uh-huh. the, the Zachary was literally in a kayak looking at clouds, thinking about the cloud atlas. Give me that scene. Where was that scene? There were no clouds. Listen. There was no shots. Think about how many movies have just like time-lapse shots of clouds rolling across a cityscape? Yeah, probably too many. Probably too many. How about you? Is your movie named Cloud Atlas? <laughs> no. Then that's okay. What if it is? <laughs> then you need a fucking shot of clouds. I will say in the first one of the first shots of Adam. And where's an atlas, Will? Did you see a single atlas? No, you didn't. <laughs> I saw. Maybe you saw maps. <laughs> that's all you saw. I don't have anything to say to that. You know what a map is. Like... <laughs> Well, your your dad is a big map. Yeah, he's a big map guy. Yeah, I know a fucking map when I see yeah. one. And it's different than an atlas. Different than an atlas. There no. might have been an atlas in Vivian Air's office. I'm, that's all I'm gonna say. Oh, there might have been. There <laughs> might have been an atlas. We gotta rewatch it. Unbelievable. <laughs> that was certainly a spicy take. All right, thank you. Well, what's your what's your hot take? Mine was this film should have been should have at least been nominated, but it should have won an Academy Award for Best Editing because. Um, the editors did way too much work on this movie. It was a bit of a jigsaw. Although puzzle. we we both agree that it was wrong, a bad choice. Yeah, it was, it was <laughs> the wrong choice to edit this film so much. They did some great work. 
They did a lot of work. They did probably too much work, yeah. Yeah. But And you should be rewarded for work that you shouldn't be doing, right? It's sort of like when Kobe scores 81 points, but he takes 81 shots. Yeah. That's sort of what Cloud Atlas is. Yeah. It's not the most efficient use of 81 shots, but, well, you know, he scored 81 points. I wonder what, like, the average, like, cuts, like, scene cuts are mm. um, in film just in general and, like, where where this lies this is certainly got has to be like an outlier like way up there that's interesting yeah yeah i don't know i feel like that would be there's got to be something on the internet about that yeah so eric final thoughts what will you remember from the movie and what will you remember from the book we didn't talk about um the georgie in Slusha's crossing which is this sort of like religious not religious but i guess like pagan character who comes up whenever zachary tries to do things he just like pops on his shoulder more or less and it's like you can't do that or kill her oh georgie whatever yeah like related to it maybe this <laughs> it's all connected it's all coming back um i thought he was really creepy and really really good yeah it, it, i totally agree so i remember him and then i remember tom hanks as dermot hoggins oh my god with that goatee and chain and like fake nose it's sort of like the matt damon fake nose in oceans 13 and it's like tom hanks is just in his trailer and uh the wachowskis are like tom hanks how's the nose look and he's like the nose plays the nose definitely plays (laughs) and they're like good just come out here what about the those are two from the movie what about the book what's your favorite part of the book Timothy Cavendish is really funny to be in his head. Yeah. It's really good. I think the scope of the book to me, the big thing that's different between the book and the movie is the scope feels way less grand in the movie version. Really? Like it's not as epic to me as it is in the book. Mm. I don't know if you feel that, but that's, that's, I think, I think if I was going to distill my feelings down, that would be okay. feeling a, yeah, I think I would probably agree with that um the book felt way more magical yeah the movie feels less magical yeah um so for the movie i'm gonna remember the most the like the neo soul just that like cyberpunk look to it blade blade runner kind of look uh as well as the action scenes are pretty dope um that could have been the movie all on its own that's not an original thought but like that was a great fucking they did a great job with that um, that story, I think. Um, and then from the book, probably the Timothy Cavendish part as well. Um, yeah. He's the spinoff character. Yeah, you need your comedy relief, your comic relief, right? Yeah. So, and then, Eric, which is your favorite? The book or the movie? What is your choice? I think listeners of this podcast will have a sense that it's the book. And I think that's that's how I come down on it. That's fine. It's a book. I'm going to choose a movie. So but you have nothing to back it up because you're. Listen. Cl- you're as. You are as. I don't know. How serious is a serious cloud. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to make a cloud reference, but then I, I couldn't get there. I did it for you. Yeah. So you're welcome. No, I like. I, I don't you're know. As, you're as transparent as a cloud. <laughs> with your pick. Oh, unbelievable. There you go. No, the reason I chose a movie was because. It was a lot easier, a lot more easily digestible. 
I think I've mentioned that a few times. Yeah, this, but. that's fair. And for me, I'm not as big of a reader as you are. And for me to like really love a book, I have to like be able to like really sit down with it and really get engaged with it. If I like struggle with a book like I did with this, I'm usually not going to have good memories of it. So I'm a movie, I'm a movie guy. So. You're a movie guy. So, um, so we're going to sign off. Eric, what is our next episode? We are going to be doing Inherent Vice by Thomas Pynchon. And then um, I'm excited for that one. That's going to be interesting. I don't know anything about this story. Me neither. Yeah. I just downloaded it on my Kindle. Oh, I'm going to be firing it up soon. Oh, baby. I looked at my phone instead of my Kindle. My Kindle's over there. What's up, Kindle? But just, have you read Thomas Pynchon before? I have not. Yeah, neither have I. I know nothing about anything about this book. I know he's pretty famous. Relatively famous. Yeah, but. I think that's right. Um, and then check out our most recent episode with Mr. Charles on the social network versus the King's Speech. That was very entertaining. Um, and shout out that motherfucker Shia LaBeouf. We appreciate you. We love you. We miss you. Come on the pod. You know, if you're available, I know you're busy filming and rapping and whatever else you're doing. That's right. He's a big rapper. That's right. That's right. He's a great rapper. All right. So, bye, Will. Bye, Eric.